I will never forget the brilliant and vibrant sounds of Johann Sebastian Bach's unaccompanied cello suite number one in G major, bouncing around the walls of my hospital room on a cloudy fall day in 2014. Uh, I didn't actually know the name of the song then, and I wasn't even one to listen to classical music on my own time. My doctor told me to do it, because classical music calms the brain. And I hadn't slept in a week and a half, which I guess would have been good for me to do, considering I just had brain surgery. So I pulled up the Pandora music app on my phone and typed in classical, hoping that maybe some dead white guy could lull me off into some decent REM sleep. Would box transcending beats fix my broken brain? Would his sick cello solo repair my damaged eyeballs? You're about to find out, because it's time for Mimi and the Brain. Oh, window, found it, crawling in. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Tell us about yourself. A tiny clump of cells in my cerebellum had ruptured. That doesn't make sense. What? Yeah, I know. Nothing is real. (laughs) This is Westworld. We're all robots. Great. I want the truth! Let's get this podcast on. Welcome to Mimi and the Brain, a podcast about brains for people that have them, where a comedian will get her questions answered about the most fascinating organ, the human brain. I'm your hostess with the mostest brain damage, Mimi Hayes. Now, today's topic is one that I'm sure you're all very familiar with. It's something I used to dislike solely for the reason that it kept my high school students from listening to my engaging history lectures during class with their little white headphones dangling from their ears like spaghetti noodles. It's something I do on the subway in New York City to avoid crazy people. I do this when I'm jogging down the streets pretending to be someone who enjoys running and also when I honestly just need to let Adele's beautifully tormented lyrics channel my inner demons. It's music. You know it well. Whatever your genre of choice, we are all connected through rhythms and sounds. And those rhythms and sounds can be smushed together in very fun ways to create beats and jives and tunage that can help make all of us a little less insane in the membrane. There's been a lot of research done on the impacts of music on the brain. It's something that we encounter every single day in our phones, on TV, out in the streets. But what is all this noise to our brain? What does it do in there? Does it change the way we think? Does it influence our decisions and how we see the world? And I'm sorry, but does dubstep fry your brain? But let's get more specific here. We're going to discuss jazz music today. Now, I don't know what it is about jazz, 
but give me a 12-piece live band and I will turn into a dancing machine. (laughs) And if there's a saxophone solo, oh, forget about it. I will be embarrassing you on the dance floor until I am politely asked to leave. No dance floor? No problem. I will create my own. I will shimmy my way onto the bar if I have to. And I will. I really will. so delightful and old-timey about jazz. But what can the Chet Bakers and Duke Ellingtons of the world do for our brain? Well, listening to 30 minutes of jazz each day can alter your brain waves, giving off theta, delta, and alpha waves. But they promote higher creativity, better sleep, and relaxation. Listen to jazz after a stroke? God forbid, and you might find your verbal memory and focused attention scores improving anywhere up to 25%. This week I was inspired to do my own research and hit up a few jazz shows around New York City to see what all the hubbub was about. And today, we are catching up with a real-life expert about all the crazy ways jazz impacts what we say, feel, and do. to discuss jazz music and the brain on today's episode and we are so privileged to have a very special guest in our presence right now this person has done all kinds of research from studying the eyeballs of overdosed patients to understanding the mechanics and sounds of decision making in the brain in real time to applying the equations that cracked nazi codes to monkey brains he has published his findings in fancy magazines and scholarly journals He's received a slew of awards and memberships from places like the American Philosophical Society and the National Academy of Medicine. He is a professor at Columbia University in the Department of Neuroscience. Folks, we are sitting here at the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute with Dr. Michael N. Shadlin. Doctor, can I call you doctor? I never know about these title things. You can call me Mike. Okay, Mike. Me. Mike. Okay, that's good. Great. Mike, thank you so much for having us in today and being patient with our um, setting up of all oh, this fancy equipment. Um, 
You know, I'm sure you have a lot of busy brain uh, stuff to do today. So thank you for making some time for us. It's a pleasure. Okay. So my first question is, when did you know that you wanted to be a brain guy? You know, did you always know this about yourself or did you have kind of an aha moment? I, I think since I was a kid, I used to think about thinking. And, uh, and when I was a sophomore in high school, I learned what a synapse was, which is the connection between one cell and another cell in the brain. And, um, and I went home that night, and I worked out an idea about how learning and memory might work. I remember arguing with my dad all night, and then my sophomore biology teacher, Mrs. Aggers, told me I should stick to my guns. And it turns mm. out that the theory I came up with was sort of a very popular theory in neuroscience. I just didn't know it. You had no idea. Yeah. Wow. That's so, awesome. So I, I think my friends were not surprised when I decided to get a PhD in neuroscience, but I was because I thought I was going to change the world politically. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Well, there's a possibility you could change your, the world with your research. So I think it's it's a good thing for the world. Yeah, the world is small. The research world is you know very friendly and small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you run the Shadlin Lab. You have a lab named after you. No big deal. Um, what is your focus of study there? We study how the brain makes decisions, as you said a moment ago. And um, decisions is a window, I think, onto higher brain function in general because it involves flexibility in time and also contingency. You know, we, we can do lots of things semi-reflexively or automatically, but decision-making invites us to think about that flexibility part. And I think in doing that, we're studying sort of the building blocks of thought, normal thought, or um, the way I like to think about it as a neurologist is that what we're studying in the lab is how a normal brain is not confused and, um, and ultimately trying to reveal the basic building blocks that go awry in brains that are confused, which means sick. Me. You know. Yeah, my brain. <laughs> I'm confused well, a lot. Well, we're all confused <laughs> a lot. We're confu- you know, we're, but, um, you know, as a neurologist, you know, we treat dis- disorders and a lot of times, I mean, we do lots of good things for people. Mm-hmm. And, um, but there's a lot of frustration in neurology and psychiatry uh, because I think we're, you know, we're still a bit in the dark in terms of how higher functions work, higher, you know, we say cognitive functions. And, um, and so that's, that's what I see myself studying. I study decision-making just because it's a tractable, uh, tractable version of higher thought. Okay, higher thought. Mm, that's good. So, so let's break it down from the higher thought, if we can. How does information from the world around us lead to us our brains making a decision you know what are the actual mechanics of making a decision and and to that point why don't we just immediately react to stimuli you know how do we have that delay so that i can walk past the pastry shop and not just gobble everything up automatically how does that work so you've touched on a couple really important issues okay so the the last one was self-control and that's you could sort of think of that as a policy you know, there are times where you actually say you're hungry, you might really want to go into that pastry shop and get something. And other times where you know you're meeting someone for dinner, so you decide you're not going to. So there's a decision there. But some of that involves uh, weighing costs and benefits, and all of those kinds of issues come into the fold of trying to understand how the brain makes decisions. But when we break it down, when it comes right down to it, the brain makes decisions by first asking a question so it's directed at a possibility. Maybe it's not a possibility between A and B or left and right, 
although those are decisions too, might be possibilities between many things or even what even to think about next. But still thinking about the brain, interrogating the world for information in the form of evidence bearing on propositions is really important. Um, if you don't mind, I'd just say that like what our field and maybe the field of computer science has all wrong is thinking that the job of the brain is to put labels on things, figure out that's a car, that's a deer, that's a mm. horse, that's, you know, whatever. Uh, that's my mom, whatever. But the bar, the, what the brain is really doing is interrogating inf- interrogating in- information that comes through the senses, sort of asking questions about it and getting answers from the senses that bear on a proposition. And the proposition is, might that be my mom? Might I turn left or right? And so forth. So the brain is always directed in a kind of questioning way. Okay. So you think that um, the people get that wrong about that it's more about the question answer process happening in real time? Yeah. The way I'd put it is that that the the incorrect metaphor is as signal, is brain as signal processor. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the correct metaphor is brain as interrogator. Okay. So knowledge is, is structured in the brain as an interrogation. Now, we break that down in the lab to say, well, what does that really mean? You just get past the metaphor and say, how, do the, how does the brain work? And, um, and one of the critical things for making a decision, and you touched on it in the example of going past the pastry shop or the example of a kind of a reflexive action, is, is that it has freedom in time. And so to me, the, the key in, in evolution of brains that had the building blocks or the rudiments of higher brain function, cognition, when I say cognition, I just mean more complicated than a sensory motor action. So to have that requires, in evolution, I was going to say, that in evolution what happens is is that um, brains developed a freedom from immediacy. It didn't take information from the world and say, right now I've got to do it. But it um, used the information and said, well, maybe I need more information. And so the, nut, the nuts and bolts of making a decision is, first of all, figuring out what decision to make, that's the interrogation part. Finding the source of evidence that might bear on it, that's also an interrogation part. In a way, it's an exploration for what's for information of relevance. And then it's the assembling of the information to bear on that hypothesis, and that requires time of just collecting information, and then, which we say oftentimes has the flavor of integration or accumulation of information or evidence. And then there's some stopping some some optional stopping policy on that accumulation that says that's enough. Mm. I now know enough to answer in, internally. I don't have to say all these things aloud, but you know internally to have enough to now commit to proposition A or B, left or right, mom or you know aunt, whatever. Okay, okay. So so while we're on that time and decisions, you know, is there is there a timestamp on when that decision, how long that takes for you to go from that? the interrogation where you're gathering that to actually making the choice? Are we talking milliseconds? Are we talking, you know, if we're thinking about how conscious we are of this, how, how conscious are we and what's the time on that, do you think? Okay, another great question. So the most of the decisions we make, that's just how the brain works to do anything complicated. And most of that's happening under the radar of consciousness. I can tell you how consciousness works, but you want to do that too early in the podcast. People <laughs> yeah. will just so freak out that they won't listen to the rest of it. You know? Stay here. Uh, <laughs> it's, really pretty, it's much simpler than people think, actually. But, but most decisions and most thought is, happens under the radar of consciousness. You know, if you were asked later, were you aware that you were thinking about this, that, and the other, you'd say, no, I wasn't. You know? On the other hand, you know darn well that a lot of times things pop into your mind. 
And when they pop into your mind, that's because your brain's been working on it for a while. Mm -hmm. And then something happened, and we can talk about what that is, that made it become conscious, okay? But um, so for the most part, we're not necessarily aware of the moment, but we can be. In fact, we did a study with humans where we asked them to kind of tell using a fancy kind of clock mm. when it was they thought they had made up their mind. And we could, we could show that it looks just like the kinds of operations that we study in humans and in animals that is the marker of the completion of a decision, which is when the evidence accumulation reaches some threshold, you know, a criterion level. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So we measure, you can measure the amount of time it takes to make a decision by saying, hey, okay, Mimi, you're going to make a decision about this, and I give you stuff, and maybe I give you more stuff and more stuff, and you say now. Or you just answer. And then I, if, if we're right about that that was really, you know, you, you could tell a story about that. You could just say, well, I just decided I was going to say now, for whatever. But it could be that you, you made a decision at that now time because you had accumulated enough evidence, in which case... There ought to be some kind of trade-off between how long you take and how likely you are to be correct on the decisions or how accurate you're going to be in, your, in, in what you say. So we call that a speed versus accuracy trade-off. And we can measure that. And so now what we're talking about is times that are well over a millisecond, well over the amount of time it takes to just quickly see something. So we're talking about for even simple perceptual decisions, they can last up to a second because we're deciding based on this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence. That's enough. Okay, I just went through a second and a half there is probably. And so, but, you know, obviously for other decisions in life, we might take hours or even put it on the side and we're not ready to decide yet. We could come back to it later. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's That ties in really nicely to what we're about to talk about. So you've done some research about the longer it takes you to decide on something, the less accurate that decision is. Can you speak a bit more to that? research you've done on that usually if you the longer you take might be you can get two kinds of relationships maybe the longer it takes the less accurate you are because the longer it takes is a clue that you are getting kind of crappy information from the world Mm. okay Um, you often don't know what that it's going to be crappy information like for example the example i like to give when i lecture about it is say say um, you walk in and then to some bar or something and there's the news on and it's fox news Mm-hmm. You know, you might as well not listen. Okay? <laughs> so, but on the other hand, you might decide it's worth working through this difficult problem when I know that it's a reliable source of information, you know, NPR, something yeah. like that, okay? So, um, so there's that. But most of the time, we don't know the reliability of the information. We just have the information. And if we're taking more time, we might be actually learning implicitly, again, without any consciousness, but implicitly our brains kind of recognize that's probably a less reliable source because I'm used to being able to make this kind of decision quickly. It took me three seconds, but it, you know, whereas normally it takes me a half a second. Right, say. yeah. Then there's the other kind of the exact opposite relationship occurs, which is that let's just say information was fixed in its reliability. It's the same kind of radiograph. You know, you're in there, you're reading, uh, you know, mammograms or something, you know, in, in the hospital, okay? And you know how to do this, but sometimes you're in a hurry, you'll make more mistakes. So that's fast, now you make mistakes. Sometimes you take your time, you make fewer mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that's sort of a, one of these policies that we bring to the table when we make decisions that our brains bring to the table that make is the difference between, you know, one decision maker and another, despite having all the same information. 
and um, you know have had discussions with ethicists, you know, philosophers about where the neuroscience of decision making connects to the kinds of things they think about: moral responsibility, free will, things like that. And I think that's sort of the level; it's at that policy level, like things like speed accuracy trade-off. Mm-hmm. So, what the heck does any of this have to do with jazz, Mike? We're going to talk about jazz and the brain today. Can you give us a working definition of jazz? And how do decision-making and jazz fit together? Wow, that's a lot. Okay. <laughs> I can't really, I don't think I can give a working definition of jazz. You know, it's, that's, it's a historical thing. And the word, you know, had all kinds of weird connotations when it first came up. And um, most of them, you know, involving putting down of, of, of African-Americans, things like that. So, you know, so jazz has this beautiful history. My view, jazz is like the great gift that America has for the world. I mean, mostly we are doing terrible things to the world, and, <laughs> um, but, um, but jazz is a good one. And um, so, so I, I'm not going to really define it, but we know, kind of, we know kind of what it is. It's had different, it's come in different forms in different times because it's an evolving thing like most art, okay? It's a, I think it's a very special kind of art, in the sense that it really does involve so much spontaneity, um, and you know, the emphasis is so much on improvisation. But you know, we're improvising right now with our dialogue that we're having. We're reacting to each other. We're saying things we didn't plan to say. You know, I mean, you planned some of your questions. You know, <laughs> I think about the kinds of things I'm yeah. saying every time, every now and then. I catch myself sort of just on script or something. You know? Yeah. But um, but for the most part, we're being very spontaneous. So in part, I think music, jazz especially, but art in general, is a celebration of the very things that we are doing when we're using our cognitive facilities, our capacities. Okay? So I, and I see it as a celebration in part because I think art in general, and jazz especially, is an implied social communication. Okay? We have a sense that it's the moment uh, I'm the musician and you're the beholder, you're the listener, and I'm even if you're not in the room, there's an implied communication because I'm imbuing in you a set of expectations of where the harmony, the time, where things are going. I'm telling you kind of a story. Some of it might, you might have a sense, oh, that's coming in right now. That's coming back to the key right now. That's going to land on the one right now, you know. Mm -hmm. But some of it might be more like a story like, well, eventually Odysseus is going to come home after that big long trip. And that's sort of like, you know, maybe like a great player in jazz might tell a story over 10 choruses and actually they're actually you know, they're resolving and they're playing around with tensions, but over many, many scales. But there's still this implied communication between the artist and the beholder. It means that art and jazz especially, again, are situated because there is a sense in which you may or may not get what the artist is trying to imply. Mm-hmm. And um, but, um, but if you do, then probably you'll be taken on a little bit of a journey with a little bit of teasing, tension, release, and so forth, resolution, or not. You know, that could be interesting and funny sometimes, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't know what, what the exact right adjective is. But anyway, so jazz has to do with, with setting up expectations, looking for resolution, and possibly achieving them and taking little journeys in between, you know. That's what we do when I said that knowledge is interrogation, is we kind of have a sense when we see something how it might come out. We kind of have a sense when we think of a mathematical idea, how it might resolve. You know, it's really all the same kind of thing. We think about a sentence that might finally end, okay? You know, so, <laughs> that was amazing, yes. Yeah, but that's an example, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. it might as well, right. So, so um, 
Anyway, so I think we do this all the time, and you couldn't understand or parse language or understand a story if you didn't have some set of expectations because your brain is basically interrogating. And, um, and, um, and then, therefore, it can be fooled and teased and, and satisfied and so forth. So, um, so I think that's what we do with, in jazz in particular because it's so, there's such an, an immediacy to the communication among the players on the bandstand, even the player and him or herself, when they're, you know, because there's a sense in which things kind of happen because the last thing happened or because of a sudden um, an answer to kind of a question raised before, there's, you know, these are motifs, question mm-hmm. and answer, and so forth, and so um, so there's just it just is allowed to be as free as it is, even even for jazz that's constrained coming off of a piece of paper, you know, where we everyone knows the same changes. I'm not talking about free jazz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's amazing that the jazz is also interrogation. That is a, is looking for your brain to s- surprise anything and any anyone um in the room with the notes and the keys and the changes um you know i think when we talk about jazz improvisation when you play you don't really stick to a script right you kind of like can go anywhere you want to go and then come back to like a main beat is that is that correct well the beat is sort of the is the key the key time is i think time is sort of the archetype of the aesthetic of, of art because there, you know, all cultures dance. We all have a sense of a pulse. But then we can tease a bit about, you know, around it, you know, syncopate, swing, you know, play off the beat, you know, things like that. But ultimately, there's kind of a resolution, maybe on the one, as people say, you know. So, so um, there's, there is that same basic structure of implying a, uh, implying a, a resolution, which is you know that's mm-hmm. the, that was the one let's yeah. say you know you know but you listen to great jazz drummers you know that might have been the and of four meaning something that comes just before one and so there's a lot of tension released just in the time but time itself is so central to now i'm going to go back to cognition mm-hmm. because if it wasn't for a kind of flexibility with time we would be reflex like it wasn't for this flexibility with time where I, what i would call freedom from immediacy then we would just be bound to acting on the things that came in a moment ago, and um, and you know we would move our bodies in real time, and we would gather information in real time, but there'd be no room for thought. So flexibility with time was the key to cognition, and time, I think, is the core aesthetic, the archetype. And you know, all players will say, if the time is right, it almost doesn't matter what notes you play. Oh, wow. Okay. So then follow up question to that. It doesn't matter the notes you play. So, so you're just jazzing along. You're just doing your thing. You're trying out notes. You don't know what's coming next, but you do it anyway. You hit a note and maybe it's not right. Is that possible to have a wrong, a wrong jazz? Like, and, and also with that, what happens in the brain when you do make that mistake, what you feel to be a mistake, what happens in the brain? Okay. So those are multi-level questions yeah no but it's not not just that there each each level is extremely insightful okay so let's break that down so we'll come back to sort of the the awareness of your own errors which is kind of cool since the world hasn't given you feedback but let's go back to something else so so it's not just jazz it's like all of art and and you know whether we're talking about a dancer who defies gravity in some sense and then resolves or a sculpture that seems to do that like mm-hmm. David or something you know and yet seems relaxed or something you know there's we could do this with any form of art you know what I did before with the odyssey you know, is coming home ultimately after a lot of you know steps you know 
it's nothing special even about jazz in the sense of everything I said could have applied to classical music, you know, for example. Right. Now, there is a sense in which the, where I'm going to use the word intentionality, you know, someone else might use the word authenticity or something, but or another way, simple way to say, you mean what you say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not rehearsing in my mind the next word I'm going to say, nor are you. Okay. But um, at the same time, when that word comes out, you meant it. Now, if that word came out and you happened to bite your tongue in the middle of it, you'd know that you, what came out of your mouth, the sounds anyway, that were reaching my ear, again, there's an implied social thing going on, you know, that you said something because you wanted a listener to hear it, right? Mm-hmm. It had a meaning to you. And if I missed it, and because of the way you bit your tongue, I mistook your word, you'd know that that wasn't what you intended. So if you know what you intend, then in a sense, you may have a sense that you made a mistake, or at least you surprised yourself. Now, you can recover from a mistake, you know, and, um, and every musician, I, I make so many mistakes, I'm an expert <laughs> at, at recovering from mistakes. It's very easy. You just insist on the same note just several keep doing times. It. You just commit. Yeah, if you do it rhythmically, it's okay. Anyway, I don't want to, uh, you know, it's, it's really unfair of me since I'm an amateur jazz player to, to really talk, you know, with any um, uh, street cred about <laughs> what it is to do all these things, although I, but... Um, at least I I know enough to really admire it when I see people do it and I try to emulate it. Okay. It's just to be clear, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pro. (laughs) So, um, um, uh, but in any case, there is, once we get established that there was an intentionality to the note or riff, even, even if it's a vocabulary thing that you've played a hundred times, but it really felt like it had to come there. You know, and um, then there's a sense in which if it wasn't right, if you really intended it to resolve on, you know, the half beat after the third beat in the measure, that's the end of three, that if you really intended that and it turns out that it actually resolved on four, you might sense, whew, that's, it's all happening in a flash course, but you might sense that's not really what I intended, but it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Or you might say, hmm, I've, I've got to practice. <laughs> so happy accident or go back to the drawing board. Yeah, yeah, and exploiting those accidents, that's kind of fun too. I mean, that's I don't want to say that's the essence of creativity because I think creativity is is a non-capricious, you know, non-random exploration. Okay? It's it's like what animals do when they forage for food. They don't just like flip coins and go any which way and then mm-hmm. happen to run into the food. They're they're searching with a purpose, with strategy and so forth. And the same thing goes in when you're when you are exploring, improvising, you're you are exploring with a purpose. So, but nonetheless, that purpose means it's still intended. There's something intended about it, just like the words that are coming out of our mouths. And so in that sense, since they're intended, they can self-satisfy or achieve the, the aim or desideratum. You know, you Ooh, that's know, a fancy word. What does that mean? That's, um, that, that's like the thing that, that is trying to be achieved. Desideratum? I like that word a lot. <laughs> I, get, I learned that word reading about uh, about Bayesian probability. It comes up all the time. It's like this guru book and about uh, about probability theory. That's so fancy. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, do, I, I don't really know what it means. I just said it to impress you. <laughs> Amazing. So. so I've read that you've done some studies on how brains keep track of time with some monkeys and flashing lights. What is happening in the brain when we're tracking time. And can you talk about that experiment for us? Yeah. But, I mean, since this is a public 
this, you're, this, oh, is, a, yes. this is a podcast, uh-huh. right? So I want to explain one spe- thing that's important to background since we are going to talk about yeah. about work with animals, especially really great animals, sentient creatures like monkeys, mm-hmm. is that is that um, there's sort of an ethics that we practice, and the the basic ethic of animal research is that you le- use the 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 least sentient creature possible for the aims that had better be justified anyway if you're going to use animals. So, um, um, and so we we do these experiments in higher brain function cognition, and so that's why we use the monkeys. And and I just wanted to be really clear that we don't hurt the monkeys. No okay, monkeys were people, harmed in the yeah. filming of this podcast. Exactly, okay, but or right. just in general, it's just a, it's it's a really important thing for people to know. Yeah. I mean, your medicines come from animal research, and mm-hmm. knowledge about how the brain works comes from animal research. You know, I'd like to think I'm contributing to that, so it's essential, but um, but I, and important, and maybe not in everyone's comfort zone. But um, we're very very sensitive about uh, and try to be sensitive to the animals themselves, and also to. Um, just trying to get things right. It's mm-hmm. highly regulated and so forth. I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, that's important to me to get across. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now, yes, we um, we record neurons in the brain. We, in, you know, all the electrical activity and so forth, and we do that in the time experiment that you're thinking about is um, to try to understand what it is about the brain that allows us to anticipate time. So again, just like I said before, time is a perception. It's not, you don't have a sense organ for time. It's in you. Okay. But you do have a sense. You could say what's in you like a clock and like waking up every day. It's called circadian rhythms. You know, a lot of your cells in your body have circadian rhythms, even if they're not in the brain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and they, they know about time at a much longer time scale. And it very is, and it's kind of a signal processing with chemistry. It's beautiful. I mean, there was just a Nobel prize for this recently, this last wow. year, um, that, um, for how, um, how this works, and it works kind of like a clock, a 24-hour clock. It's not quite 24 hours. Anyway, time is a perception on the order of the beat, the measure, the pulse, the things we dance to, move to, and so forth. Not things working, going as fast as the flickering lights, but, you know, but time that we might use cognitively for various things we do to sequence and so forth. That is not our sense of time is not organized as a processing like a clock. It's organized as an anticipation. Again, like you're interrogating, by now such and such should have occurred. I'm expecting that beat now. Ooh, that drummer was kind of laid back. Or if you've listened to Nina Simone, you know, if you want to hear what it means to have the time rock solid in your soul, Mm -hmm. but sing so laid back behind it, but it's always there. You know, listen to Nina Simone. You Mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, um, it's, pretty amazing anyway you can come up with your favorite too but you know every everyone has their own sense of where time is anyway that was a digression back to (laughs) the jazz but um but um in the brain what we found was it was sort of an accidental discovery when we found it is i'll tell you that story it's kind of cool is that i was playing around with random number generator we're studying decision making and how the brain assembles evidence on a hypothesis and so forth a proposition and then i was fooling around a bit well not fooling around i was kind of just altering the time, the just time delays in what the animal was doing. And I noticed, I could hear it, like the, the, the way the neurons were responding completely changed their character. And it sure sounded to me like what they were doing was kind of, they kind, that something in the brain had kind of figured out that shorter times were now possible. Mm. And so, 
So anyway, we came up with, a th- we, we formalized that as we often do in the language of mathematics. And so that's sort of like saying, what's the probability something's going to happen in the next moment, given it hasn't happened yet? Okay? So it's like not saying, what's the probability you're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow? But Hopefully small. Hopefully very <laughs> small. But, you know, it's the kind of thing you do think about in medicine. You say, okay, if someone had a heart attack in the year 2018, and what's the probability they're going to have a heart attack in the year 2022, four years down the line? But you really want to say, what's the probability they're going to have that heart attack four years down the line, given that they made it to 2022? Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's kind of like what it means to anticipate as a function of time. Time passes, and you're kind of anticipating. If I told you I had an alarm that was going to go off in 10 seconds, then at one sec- within 10 seconds, randomly, you'd be anticipating it maybe at the beginning, but after a second, maybe a little bit more after two seconds. But if nine and a half seconds went by and the alarm hadn't gone off, you'd know it's about to go off. Okay, so that's anticipation. You, you heard it in the volume of my voice, sort of, whoa, that mm-hmm. was, that's mm-hmm. an anticipation function. That's what I heard in the neurons, that they were doing that. So we went back and we did a bunch of experiments to see whether that was true. I won't bore you with all the tests, but it was true. So, we have, so the brain has a sense of when, by now, such and such should occur. It's anticipating time, okay? Mm-hmm. It learns the temporal structure of the environment, is what we showed. And that temporal structure meaning kind of like it learns the schedules, you know? And I think that's my, I'd speculate now that I think that's like the first thing animals learn about their environment is like kind of how long you should wait and how, how, many, how many turns in that maze am I willing to go against the odor gradient, you know, until I find the cheese. Ooh, wow. Found that cheese after three turns. Pretty cool. Score. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so I think we, I think time is the first thing we know about about our world. It's so it's very fundamental. I love that. That's great. So let's see. Um, let's talk about like creativity and improvisation. Um, I think you had mentioned this at your Lincoln Center event. I watched you like jam out with your. Was that your band, or had you performed with them before? Well. They're, they are, Chris Washburn, the trombonist, um, um, brings together different musicians when he plays, and then, and he lets me play with him now and then. Uh. And so, you know, so that's a real treat for me. Those guys are absolutely amazing. If you were at Lincoln Center, that, that gig, um, yeah, I think Ogana Okegwa was on the bass, um, and I'm trying to remember... Um, oh yeah, Sylvia. Uh, it was a woman drummer, right? Did, yeah, I think oh, wait, so. yeah, yeah, Sylvia Cuenca. Yeah, and you know, I mean, these are greats. I mean, they play with all the best people in the world, and they are among the best people in the world. So, so, <laughs> so it's not my bad. <laughs> I call it. It's my cheating way of playing guitar in New York. Oh, I love people it. are people are so good in New York that yeah. it's really hard to play. So a lot of people think that improvisation is just making things up. And I think we kind of talked about this before about, you know, the um, the word you used was interrogation. Intentionality. Intentionality. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about that improvisation and how it's maybe not just, oh, boo, 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 just making stuff up as I go. Yeah. Well, again, there's this uh, there's there's two aspects again, because the improvisation is for an implied listener, too. But let's just think about it now from the first person perspective of what someone's doing. You know, they're exploring in all kinds of dimensions. There's the time dimension, and there's the melody and harmony dimension, and there's almost ver- most composition. There's th- there are things about, like, what the song is. So some people will really care. A lot of jazz standards come from 
um, you know, songs that had words. And um, a lot, I've taken lessons from people who say that you have to know the words of the song. And, but whatever it is, you might take inspiration from it, even take inspiration from the title of the song or inspiration from other artists you've heard perform the song and so forth. So there's, the, the inspiration comes from a lot of places, but there is a, there is a, a kind of a, a, a structure Structure in time, in harmony, in melody, in history of the song, maybe history of the movement that gave rise to the song, or whatever. There's all kinds of dimensions, and um, and so there's storytelling basically, and um, and you know there there are motifs. If you want to get someone to anticipate something, you might ask a question. You know, not as simple as da 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 da, you know, mm-hmm. not like that, but. Um, well, maybe as a joke, but you know, but in a sense, that structure, question and answer, is a kind of a common motif. So there's lots of things that goes through the player's mind as they are improvising, and as I say, the really great players are kind of composing on the fly, and they're doing it at so many different levels that they're bringing you emotionally through some crazy thing. Oftentimes, it starts out quiet, ends quiet, goes to some peak before, and um, you know, so there's oh, there's so many levels. It's you know, it's but it's definitely not like I'm just going to throw out any old note, you know. Right. So, so with that, we're actually going to play our first game. Are you ready to play your first game? Anytime, as long as it's not like the puzzle with Will Shorts. No, that I no. refuse to do. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do a little segment called Brain Games, and for this game, it's called Inside the Artist. And I'm going to play um, a bit of a jazz song for you. And uh, I would like for you to stop me when you want, when you hear a moment where you want to talk about what you think was going on in that artist's head at that moment. And we can kind of dissect and go and deep dive into um, this artist's brain in that moment of improvisation. So um, we're going to do some Alicia Keys. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. All right. So. This is actually from an interview with Alicia Keys, and uh, she's on a German talk show. And uh, he's kind of a goofball, and she's just going to have to pick up what he sets in front of her. This is a totally improvised song um, by Alicia Keys and this German dude. Because I'll show you something you've never seen before. No, you go for it. You want to come with me? We gonna float down, 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 down Through the river of life Maybe, 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 maybe You can take me far away We gonna float down, 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 down Through the river of life Alicia Keys, ladies and gentlemen Okay, so what is she doing? What are they doing? What's going on here? Well, the main reason I wanted to stop, I should say, is I didn't want to hear him sing again. (laughs) But she's great. I mean, what are they doing? Well, they're having some fun. Right. I mean, and she is just feeling it. I mean, you know, it's a, you know, a gospel-y kind of uh, church kind of spiritual kind of uh, feel. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, fooling around with it. But she is feeling it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can tell at the beginning she's sort of reacting to him. But at the end, she's just feeling it, you know. And um, okay, and so you know, she's a musician. You know, she's just um, um, I don't know what to, what to say. I mean, what what moved me just now was just when she would play with the time, 
playing with the time and the feel, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to try to imitate her, but (laughs) um, it's very like Alicia, like, like she'll stop and you, you want her to like keep going, but she does this like, and you're like, yeah, yeah, wait, don't stop. Keep going. Right. But then, you know, you know where that, where that's going to resolve and it comes back around, right? Da 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 da. You know what I mean? Uh But she would, she doesn't do it that straight. She's, you know, I'm not going to try to imitate what she did, but <laughs> she's just sort of laying back. But and you know, when she gets back to that final da 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 da, bam! You know, she's she, you know she gave she gave it to us. Yeah. You know, after saying okay. Yeah. Anyway. God, I love Alicia Keys. She's just amazing. Um, so let's see. We got a few more questions here. So I recently read a, a study published in the journal Brain and Cognition about creativity in the brain and they use an EEG machine which I can only assume stands for electrical elephant graph which I know is not right (laughs) electroencephalogram encephalo what is encephalogram it just means it's a measure of electricity it's just a thing okay so they they did these EEGs and they used them to compare the brains of jazz musicians, classical musicians, and non-musicians while listening to chord progressions. And some of the chord progressions were standard, what you'd find in any music, and then some were what they called unexpected. What they found was that the jazzy guys and gals had a different electrophysiological, <laughs> I can't say that word, response to the unexpected progressions and that they had an increased perceptual sensitivity to unexpected stimuli and an increased engagement with unexpected events. So, whoa. Um, first of all, I don't know what an electrophysiological response is, but can you also break down what's going on here and why did the jazz players have such a unique reaction to these unexpected events they were listening to okay i mean it's topical i mean it's dancing around all the themes we've been throwing around i mean physiology just means you know how biology works as opposed to like where things are and electrophysiology just means the electrical events Mm -hmm. so that's they're just saying the response that they measured on the eeg and there's a famous you know it's a very crude measurement compared to like single cells and single channels and things like that in the brain but um, but at the level of the scalp, you know, you can you can detect whether someone's asleep or awake or drowsy or having epilepsy or whatever and so forth. So it's pretty crude stuff for the most part. Very important stuff clinically, like to a neurologist like me, for example. On the other hand, there are some interesting cognitive signals. And one of those is, um, or several of them really, have to do with, the, with surprise, things that are unexpected. You know, tap, 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 boop, tap, 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 boop, tap, tap, tap. Boop. Whoops. So, yeah. So you missed that boop, right? And yeah. That, and your brain, you ha- you would have had this little event, an electrophysiological response that would have said, whoa, there was something unexpected, which just was an absence of the beep, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, and people are using those things clinically. So they're very important. So the idea that there'd be some kind of a signal on the brain that shows that someone was expecting something and, and, um, and their expectations were violated, 
that would be the kind of thing that fits right in with the things we were saying before, tension and release, teasing before resolving, and so on and so forth. And so, and, you know, whether those things are discrete enough that we could measure a brain signal or not, you know, that depends on the details. But you could imagine that a trained musician, I don't think it should be limited to jazz in my view. I'm, I think it'd be very surprising if classical musicians did not also have expectations of time because expression in classical music is all about time as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the notes are the same. You're not going to play a different note. But mm-hmm. um, I'm not talking about like cadenza and some violin concerto or something. But it's really about time. You know, if you say, what's your favorite Chopin interpreter to me? You know, it's Michelangelo, Michelangelo because this guy just takes such liberty with the time, but in an incredibly cool way. So mm-hmm. I think classical musicians would also have the same expectations as a jazz musician but of course it might depend on what they were playing as the samples so science critique aside there would be the idea that there would be a brain wave of some kind uh, but a discrete brain wave this event that occurs usually occurs about 300 milliseconds after something after the surprise you know um, that that would occur in a trained musician who's listen who's establishing actively expectations and then having them violated now and then makes perfect sense mm-hmm yeah. Now, someone like me wants to know how did it do that? You know, how we're, how did it establish an expect an ex- expectation, and what is that physiological response a result of in the actual brain? And and then someone like me wants to know does that relate to other things that we do with our brains, and ultimately to think, to do math, to have language, because in doing that kind of research, I think ultimately we are trying to, I don't know about these authors, you didn't say who they were, but the, um, that they're, the idea is that knowing those kinds of things isn't just about like finding cool things about like how jazz musicians work, but also how the brain works normally to think so that we one day fix brains that don't think properly. Yeah, absolutely. That's and the big, that's the big, that's why I'm here at the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute. It's, it's, it's that vision. Yes. Know, you know. So you are so good at just anticipating my next questions. It's kind of silly. My question is, does jazz have any benefits? Not just jazz, but no, we'll, we'll go there. And we can, you can decide maybe if you think other, it applies to other, um, other music or other art. Um, but specifically, how does, does jazz have any benefits in terms of mental health and repairing like brain damage? I don't know about that. I know people who study it and I'm, I'm you know, I'm very excited about that possibility. I mean, I know, um, Many people say anecdotally, I, I only know this anecdotally, not so I'm not speaking science or neurology, mm-hmm. but the um, but you know, for my grandfather, when he was had pretty advanced Alzheimer's at one point, but he could still play the piano, and we we got together. I think there were times whether he'd forgotten my name by then, I don't know, but we couldn't have conversations about things, but we could play music together, amazing. And a lot of people have that experience. And then I know I once met a jazz, um, a saxophonist, an amazing guy, um, who was working on rehab you know, after stroke and using music to do it. Um, and I don't know whether it, you know, how well these, these, they, these things have worked out. I mean, you know, um, so, um, you know, we'll see. But, yeah, I think it's possible that using, let's face it, I said about 10 times now, sorry to keep repeating, <laughs> that since jazz and music and art is a celebration of what we're doing cognitively, but it's a celebration using faculties that aren't the same as doing math and aren't the same as doing they're not as language. I'm just saying they have the, something very much in common with them. But we can do very cognitive things that interest us 
we can we can explore we can okay improvise we can do all those things you know and and communicate that i could imagine that you could get great pleasure and also exercise in a sense those same similar anyway cognitive faculties in a way that isn't using the very parts of the brain that might be the ones that are failing when we don't when we lose our language or we lose our ability to um, to um, uh, utilize and organize memories properly and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was I was reading about like when you can listen to jazz after a stroke, and like all your like scores go up of different things like verbal and is that true yeah i mean well i mean i read it online so i'm not sure but um you read it on the internet yes i did (laughs) on the internets i'd love to believe that's true but i just am super interested in all the research around that and i've been listening to jazz because of that you know because i'm like oh i'll be healthier so i'd be interested to see the research coming out now about jazz and and um, and brain damage so so we're going to do one more question, and then I think we're going to jump into our next little fun segment to wrap things up. And so, and so jazz is cool because it takes those skills, like early prehistoric lizard brain skills, and it pl- and makes them into art. You know, so do you have any like thoughts on that, on like using those those kind of like reptilian brain? decision making go here or go there decision making skills and now using that to like go to this note and then that note and then like do an alicia keys thing you know to make that i don't know if that makes any sense no it's perfectly <laughs> i mean i think that's a lot much longer path than we're making it sound though okay mm-hmm. so we don't use our reptilian brain for that i think but we you know in evolution again the critical thing was flexibility flexibility meaning contingency meaning that i don't have to do a or b or c when I get this particular stimulus, you know, or when I hear this sound or and so forth. So I can make decisions about things, okay? And I can do it in my time frame. I can trade off speed and accuracy. And now we get even fancier. So, so I would say that the things that we, the relationship between artistic, let's, or creating, a, creating an improvised melody, you know, in, in jazz, let's just leave it to that, is, is not like the reptile going a dink, 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 dink. It's more like the storyteller having some idea about where something's going to ultimately end and about when it might ultimately end and taking you on an interesting journey. Not just, let's just, I've just told you the end of my story and fill in whatever you want, Mm -hmm. you know. When my kids were young, I used to love telling stories. I still love giving the kids that say, okay, I have a story for you. Once upon a time, there was a boy and a girl, and they lived happily ever after. The end. <laughs> they would get all pissed at me. I'd say, okay, okay. And then we'd build it up, like, over time. It's, it was hard to keep track of everything by the time you got to think being over a minute long. But, oh, yeah. So, you know, see, but we don't do it that way. We, well, in a sense, we're playing games with you know, I'm making fun of what a structure is and then filling in the structure and so forth. You know, it was just a way to get my kids to hate me, basically. <laughs> so, um... Great. So um, we are going to wrap up with a final game to uh, close us out. Not a crossword, I hope. Not a crossword. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a music game where we're actually going to create our own music in your office using things that we find in your office to make an improvised song. Um, so I notice you have a guitar back there. I do. Is it, would you, is this a thing? 
Could it be a thing? It doesn't have to be a thing. I don't mind. I don't mind. I've been to- I told you the, the guitar got broken, though, so okay. it's a little buzzy. Okay, okay. it's buzzy. Yeah. We'll have a buzzy guitar. Okay. Okay, I'm fine with that. All right. Okay, so we're going to improvise. I have a drum that is actually a tub of Expo whiteboard wipes. So we're going to improvise. So I'm going to let you start something, and then I'm going to just come in. Or do you, yeah, yeah, let's just, we don't have to explain it. We'll just improvise. We'll just do jazz right now. Go for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're just going to play around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was Dr. Michael Shadlin on the is that a bass guitar? Jazz no, guitar? It's a regular guitar. It's a guitar guitar. And I was playing the Expo whiteboard care card thing. I don't know what this is. It's called whiteboard cleaner. Whiteboard cleaner. <sighs> Just ripping it's, it up on the whiteboard cleaner. You, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Shred it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, joining us today on Mimi and the Brain and just love the work you're doing. Can't wait to see uh, you in the the jazz clubs on International Jazz Day. All right. Uh, So thank you so much. It's an absolute delight and your questions were really spectacular. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. Today's episode of Mimi and the Brain was produced by Kylie Holloway and written by yours truly with sound mixing by Jose Manuel Alfonso, music by Lucas Murray Music, artwork by Joy Spangler, and equipment by Gotham Sound. If you like our science podcast with a comedic twist, feel free to support our campaign on Patreon and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you gooey brains later. Um, should we do the end now? Yeah, it's my personal best. Can't do any better than that. <laughs>